Welcome to the Fitness Oracle, where we have real conversations with real people just like you, with real stories just like yours, and this is one of their stories. I am your host, John Gonzalez. My guest today is Dr. John Shaman from Aerobic Center. He opened his practice in 1978, and since that time, he, had, he has had more than 56,000 patients and an unbelievably memorable number of amazing experience and patients patient interactions. While in, his while in his residency at Toronto General Hospital, he half-heartedly attended the symposium on a field he had never heard of called cardiac rehabilitation. This was not yet on the map at the time. And the hospital he trained at was as an intern, Scarborough General Hospital, Suggest, suggested he might want to go towards this and report back at the Grand Rounds to the medical staff of the hospital. It suggested to him it may be useful to him and his future practice in cardiology. He, up until, from then till now, he has helped numerous athletes from all levels of sports, from amateurs to Olympic medalists to heavyweight boxing champions. He has also been showcased on CBC Radio, CHCH-TV, and NBC. Dr. Shaman, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. So how's the podcasting going? Well, um, well one good thing about the podcasting is I met you. Uh, and uh, I, the reason I chose podcasting, actually I didn't really, I chose broadcast yourself. Uh, and of course, that ended up being broadcast. Uh, being podcasting, uh, but I wanted to broadcast my 42-year uh, lectures that I give to the cardiac patients about how to live and how to make their hearts last longer and so on and so forth. And I thought that um, this might be a way for me to, to, to get that information out there so that people in the future, when my best before date has been passed, uh, to keep that information available instead of uh, just having it be lost. So... Um, that's how it all happened, and I've, I'm, I'm surprised. I have, uh, I have a podcast uh, channel, and I have something like eight, I believe, eight or nine uh, episodes there. And I'm soon going to be launching two more, which you don't even know about. Uh, I'm launching another one for the Harmonica Lung Program, and I'm going to launch another one uh, that uh, I'm not going to uh, talk about just yet. But it's also going to be in the next few weeks. So I'm going to, uh, all of a sudden from no podcast and not even knowing what a podcast is, all of a sudden I'm soon going to have three different channels. Wow. Uh, sounds like somebody's hooked on podcasting. <laughs> well, I, I guess I have so many things I want to achieve and all of a sudden I've got this vehicle that I didn't even know existed. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's exactly how I see it as well. Yes. Uh, so what are you working on now? With respect to podcasting? With respect to everything? Well, I'm still working in my medical practice, um, 42 years this September, which is a long time. Uh, when you hear that the modern day young people uh, generally have at least three jobs in their first five years of working, um, and here I am 42 years later still in my first job, uh, that's kind of remarkable. I think the only thing that it really tells us is that the field that I'm in has really sunk deeply into me and I can't let it go. Uh, and indeed, uh, as you mentioned, going to that symposium um, on cardiac rehabilitation opened 
whole new set of doors for me. I, I, I just went there kind of on a lark. I didn't think that it would, I just thought I would go there and come back and report at the hospital, at the, at the hospital uh, Grand Rounds to see, to let everybody know what it was about because I didn't know. When I get there, I'm just captivated because what they did is they took heart patients and basically um, turned them from cripples into athletes. My mentor got on the map just before, just around the time, just a little after I started, just before I started, I should say. And he took heart patients and trained them to, and ran the Boston Marathon. I mean, that was so unusual. Uh, anyway, so because of that, I, in my training, I had to train in exercise physiology. That kind of got me connected in sports medicine, although I was already very much into athletics uh, in my own life. Uh, so I got into sports medicine. So my career was really cardiac rehabilitation and sports medicine. And here I am. Interesting. Uh, you've had quite a bit of experience, like you said, in sports and I remember myself when I was a child, uh, when I would go into tournaments, I would always have butterflies in my stomach before the tournament would commence. And I know now that um, that's normal, but when somebody is in that kind of situation, how could you train somebody's psyche before the competition to, to help them get rid of those butterflies? What would you use? Okay. So you're saying that you were a participant? Yes. Okay. You didn't say that, but I, at first I thought you were just watching somebody at a tournament or you know, a tennis tournament or something. So you were a participant. So that's a pretty usual thing. Um, and there's so many factors that come into play here. Every one of us have different personalities and sometimes we can shape those a bit. And in my work, uh, I've had the opportunity of working with pretty elite athletes as top, top of the world athletes. Uh, one of those opportunities has been with the Canadian Alpine ski team. And with the Canadian Alpine ski team, we have the absolute best skiers in the world. And Canada has uh, kind of dominated a lot of Alpine skiing over the years. And in the early days that I became a doctor for the team, we had the crazy Canucks. And at the same time, the women didn't have the same uh, publicity around uh, ski uh, as around their team, but they had uh, Jerry Sorensen, L Laurie Graham and Lisa Savage Harvey. These were all like world-class uh, skiers. And um, so I, I got uh, invited to become a doctor for the Alpine team. And um, I've worked probably a little bit more with the women's team. I got to know the coaches and they always invited, they wanted me back. And I met a, a gentleman from Ottawa who was a psychologist, but a Terry Orlick. He wrote a book, um, Pursuit of Excellence, I think it was. Um, and uh, I learned a lot from him. Uh, when you work with the ski team in Europe, you're sitting in a car going from a venue to another one. It might be eight hours uh, driving from one side of Europe to the other in the Alps and such. And so uh, I learned a lot from him. And, um, and I actually have utilized some of the things he's taught me in my own practice. Um, See, a competitive athlete, I have a sort of a physiological view of that. A competitive athlete um, is always running on the edge of overuse syndromes. Overuse injuries are very common. Um, and I look at injuries as I get to what you've asked me. I'm kind of taking a, a bit of a detour to give you a bit of background. But uh, over, um, injuries, I, I personally, if I ever write my textbook of sports medicine, I'm going to have a chapter in there about intrinsic injuries and extrinsic injuries. This is my own division. 
Uh, intrinsic injuries are those injuries that occur without a sudden external force applied to the body. Extrinsic are a sudden force applied to the body. So a skier who falls and tears his knee ligaments all the heck, uh, they have an extrinsic injury. However, uh, a runner who is running or an athlete that is doing repetitive movement and the overuse of those injuries, the, of those movements, I should say, lead to injuries that I call intrinsic. Okay. So an athlete to train at a very high level has to train very close to overuse levels. And I, I have a theory that um, the athlete that can train pretty close to a very high level of close to overuse they are the ones that are going to make it to the top. The other ones just never make it because they run into overuse injuries before they can achieve what they really wanted to achieve. So can we actually reduce overuse injuries with, with the psyche? Um, many would believe yes. And can you actually reduce extrinsic injuries with the psyche? Another point of yes. So let me address some of that, uh, and I'll use the ski team uh, as an approach here because I have a lot of interesting stories. I've also had uh, gold medalists in boxing and swimming and tennis and all this kind of thing. Uh, but um, let's look at the ski team for a minute because I actually lived with the team for 53 and a half weeks of my life. Uh, and it was volunteer work. So as a doctor, I worked for 53 and a half weeks without pay and I have no regrets. It was the most amazing experience. And early on in my career, I, I saw an athlete that had made it to the top 15 called the top seed in, in skiing, uh, in the whole world, uh, in Alpine downhill. Uh, and she had got there with really hard work. And when she got there, as often happens with athletes, they kind of feel they've got there and then they, they take off the edge a little bit. And the, psych the psyche aspect of this is you have to, coaching wise, you have to keep them at the highest level of training, whereas a lot of them back off at that point. Um, so the psyche is really important to keep people training at the right level and also to train in such a way that it reduces extrinsic injuries and even intrinsic injuries. So one of the skiers that uh, was on, on at the time when I was starting out with the team uh, had worked really hard to make it into the top seed. She was in the top 15 in the world in the downhill. And, um, but in that season that I went there, she was slipping backwards. She had a boyfriend. She wasn't training as hard. Somehow or other, she felt she got to where she wanted to be in the top seed. But she hadn't won a World Cup yet. Uh, and that was her goal. And I remember the, uh, the, the coach, um, Curry, the coach of the team, he had a special meeting with her privately. They used to have team meetings and discuss strategy and get them built up to be good for race day. And uh, he took her aside to a private room and, and had a chat with her. And afterwards, when the coaches had our meeting and the uh, drinking Jägermeister in the Austrian bar, um, he um, told us, we asked him, well, what, did you, what, did you what did you say to her? And he said, well, I just told her you've worked so hard now to make it to where you are now. You're letting it slip away. You've got to give it. You've got to give it. You've got to go. And uh, the next day was a training run, not the race. Uh, downhill uh, skiing has training runs. If you didn't have training runs and people went as fast as they could go, you'd have way too many injuries. You have to have training runs to actually build your method as you go. Uh, over several days. And uh, so in the next training run, she was number five going through the second last timing. So all of a sudden she did what she had to do, but she, she probably went above her level and she had a crash and she had a fractured dislocation of her hip. 
and it ended her career. So, so psyche can get people to overtrain because I think that may not have been the best to, uh, to, you know, take someone at that level. But how do you know that ahead of time? You don't really. And that's where coaches come in and are very important. So psychological strength is very important. And our, t- our skiers were trained. And I don't know how that applies to all sports, but skiing, it's very important. They were actually memorizing the, the course. And it's a long course. It's, it's, I can't imagine how they can remember every gate. And they have to realize where they've got to be. They, I see them sometimes close their eyes and they're, they're closing their eyes and they're, they're going through this motion. And what they're doing is they're reliving the course in their head. So that's all part of psyche. The other part of psyche is physically building up. So when a skier goes up to the start gate, uh, I, um, I did this a few times in the, in the early going with the team. Uh, I would actually measure blood pressures and heart rates. And as the skier was getting closer and closer to the start gate, their blood pressures went from a normal blood pressure of you know, 110 over 55. Uh, and then it went to a little higher, a little higher, and a little higher. When they finally got to the very end, ready to go into the gate, their blood pressures and heart rates were already at maximum. And they weren't doing anything physical. So they've obviously psyched themselves up to have a maximal heart rate and a maximal blood pressure. Uh, and then when it went out of the gate, there was, no, there was no building up. They were already there. So that's all part of psyche and part of, I guess, uh, training. Uh, not, it's not training at that point. It's, it's a competitive um, uh, goals and, and competitive strategy kind of thing. So all of this comes together and the coaches and how they – can influence people, uh, influence the, the athletes. Um, I, I had the opportunity to work with absolutely most amazing coaches ever. Uh, there was a coach that um, named Arnie Beam. Uh, he died of a heart attack uh, later on in, in his boxing coaching career. And he was, uh, he's got to be in heaven. He brought me all kinds of boxers to look after who he kind of picked up off the street who came to him by word of mouth and he became their father figure. A lot of them didn't have fathers and he, he got them into a whole new world and turned them into very fine young gentlemen. Otherwise they could have ended up in the crime scene and uh, you know, doing things that they probably would regret later. And yeah. he, uh, he was able to influence these boxers and that just helping them in their daily life instead of just in boxing also goes a long way. And I think coaches and advisors, and when I worked with the ski team, I got to know these people. I was on the, in the, in the training, sorry, in the, uh, in the vehicles that we were using to travel from one venue to the next. And I'd be with them for seven, eight hours sometimes. And it's important uh, as a coach, as a trainer, uh, as a psychologist, uh, et cetera, to actually get to know the people so they develop a certain amount of trust in you. And I think a guy like you, John, uh, what I've seen of you, I'm impressed because you seem very dedicated to your work. And I think people pick up on that and they get trust in you. And that's really important to do that. But it's all different. Every sport or every activity, uh, you doing training with your athletic population and even the non-athletic population, maybe even more so, uh, they get trust in you. And therefore, you can probably influence them better to do the things that need to be done to give them the best gain. So that's a little bit of uh, information about my experience with that. And I've also had great experience with um, gold medalists in swimming and. uh, Thanks. We're going to get, we're going to get, we're going to get into the coaches and the the, the training champions a little bit later. You said a couple of really interesting, uh, interesting points that I wanted to touch up on. Uh, The point, 
the recent point where you talked about that where the athlete guts to the starting line with the maximal heart rate heart rate do you think that that can influence the output during the competition when the athlete is in the thick of it to perform absolutely or to maybe he's thinking too maybe he's thinking or she maybe they're thinking too much and might influence the the, their result at the end of the uh, of the of the race well you know being uh, being in the field working with those athletes right there at the competition i was only experienced in the top people uh, i was not really experienced with uh, younger athletes that maybe are moving into moving up in their in their sport uh, so i can't speak about that but certainly um getting that happening the right way is really important if they get worn out and they've already, they're already burned out before they, before they go through the start gate. That's not right. So you've got to get them to that point, but you don't want them to be too low at the start gate because like they, the difference between first and third uh, could be one hundredth of a second. So that's such a small amount. And I've seen all kinds of races where the difference between first and 10th and place was way less than a second. Okay, so every little bit counts. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot of this has to do with how confident they are and having confidence in their coach and maybe in their doctor because I was helping them with all kinds of things to make sure their injuries were okay and that kind of stuff. And, and even, uh, you know, I also took the place of the, of the psychologist a lot of the times because he was only there for like one week of the, tra- of the season, of the competitive season, maybe two weeks. Uh, whereas I would be there more often. Uh, and so I learned from him and, and tried to pass that on. And uh, we certainly had some success. Uh, my next question, actually, we've kind of referred to it a couple of times. Uh, the one with the athlete that finished uh, there, she was going for, uh, she was like going for a world championship. And you mentioned it recently, the difference between first and third. Do you think, that when an athlete hits first, they start to decline, whereas the athlete that finishes third has something to strive for. Do you think that's that's a, that's a true statement? I don't think so. I don't think so. First of all, I've seen way too many skiers that have dominated for like a long, long, long time and nobody can touch them. They always win. Uh, and some of them have been Canadians, but a lot of times they've been from other countries, from the skiing. The fact that Canadians have, don- have at some points been such high levels in, in alpine in world skiing is, is remarkable because we don't have that much skiing uh, in comparison to European countries where people, that's their whole life over there. And uh, so I think, um, so I believe that um, there is a, certainly an inherent skill. There could be a genetic component where these people already have a genetic benefit because of their parents having been skiers and this kind of thing. Uh, and that counts for a little bit. And when you're looking at the difference between, you know, first and second place of being one one hundredth of a second, that can easily be made up by things like that. And even the psychology of it and everything else and, and every little bit counts, even having confidence in your equipment matters uh, in, a, in a sport like skiing, very, very much so. Uh, and having the, even the guy, your ski technician, each of these skiers has a ski technician uh, that uh, works with their skis and uses the right kind of wax, hopefully the right kind, uh, because that's a big deal. Yeah, so I, I think that 
there's little small things and the psychology of it. And of course, the, the physiology also, and the training and the strength and all of these things come into play. I hope you'll ask me at some point what I think what fitness is. Oh, I will. Don't worry. Okay, I figured you would. So. <laughs> uh, again, we touched up on this a little bit, a little bit, uh, a little while ago. Um, how a coach can affect, how can a coach affect the athlete in a positive way? Well, it's, again, it's, it's such a personality thing, personality of the athlete, personality of the, of, the, uh, of the coach, and all kinds of other variables come into this. And let me give you an example. Um, there was a, a coach that I've actually interviewed, and his skier won a gold medal in, in breaststroke in, in the Olympics. And that, that swimmer, this is a swimmer now, uh, that swimmer uh, had been known to be a, a little bit high strung and sometimes lost his cool and did things that kind of gave him a bit of bad press uh, on a number of occasions. And his coach was the one guy that kind of could rein him in and use that aggression that he might have shown at times to, to make him faster. And he had a special skill. And when, when this coach left one time to, tra to work in, in Vancouver, uh, and then while he was gone and when he came back, there was a significant beneficial increase in, in the performance. Um, so I, I think matching a skier, or not a skier, an athlete to the coach also has a lot to say about performance on the long run with respect to that athlete's uh, effectiveness and, you know, and winning. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, can you see this kind of uh, coaching bleed into someone who's saying who's suffering from something, say, like depression? Have you seen any athletes suffering from that kind of stuff? Well, yeah, I've seen things that where depression came into play, and I, I won't mention the sport, and I won't mention, but I think it's something that needs to be talked about. And I don't think, hopefully, it doesn't happen as much now anymore. Uh, but I've known of young women uh, in, in sport that have been abused by coaches. And that messes up their whole life. So I think coaches have to be very responsible. And I think there's a lot more consciousness about that kind of thing. Uh, and it certainly would affect performance. So I, I hate to think that that could be something that would happen with athletes and their coaches. But we know it does. And I've heard it happen in, not in my realm, but in, in professional tennis. Uh, and, and that's a very bad thing. And of course, we have a lot more visibility, a lot more uh, knowledge about that kind of thing, and a lot more that the athlete can come out and, and have that resolved. Uh, but that's certainly something that needs to be kept in mind. Mm -hmm. um, I, we're just moving forward. Um, if we don't have to say names and who's who kind of thing. Sure during this it's i understand the doctor patient confidentiality act that yeah. you 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 can't do that and uh, i respect that uh i respect that f uh, from 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 you and from anybody else uh so just switching gears a little bit here um 
I want to touch up on the basis of steroids in sports because it seems so much, just not now, potentially now, but in the past, a lot of top athletes have been using steroids. Uh, do you believe that an athlete who is not using steroids can finish at the top of their sport? Depends on the sport. Uh, but I would say that in certain sports, they, competing with people is not a level playing field. If an athlete is not using steroids and others are, the athletes that are using steroids have an advantage. No question. And you know, um, way back in the mid 80s, I had this chap come into my office and he was sort of a little, little not a really big guy. And he, he said that um, he wanted me to give him anabolic steroids. He was a boxer. And I said, well, I, I'd like to talk to you about that because I had, a, I had a spiel for these people. And I told them I had something else that I would give them that would give them an edge that was not cheating and that was not harmful to their physiology and their, their future health, et cetera. And, um, and he kind of listened to me and I, I wrote him a prescription for this stuff that, uh, called Vitathion, which really was something that uh, improved one's uh, ATP stores and gave you more energy in a, in a way that wasn't illegal. Uh, and then he came back again and he said, you know, I, I really need steroids because I can win a gold medal for Canada. You've got to help me. And I said, well, I'm sorry. Um, I, I, I just, my ethics are such that a gold medal for Canada is very important to me, but to, to, to be unethical and to cheat is not the way to do it. I, I, would, I couldn't do that. So he left, kind of disgruntled. He told, I asked him, uh, you know, how, how, do you, how do you, I asked him kind of how, where he gets this stuff from. Well, I can't get any right now. He's getting it from a medical doctor, an older fellow that was selling it on the side. And that doctor ended up having a medical problem because he was like 86 years old and he ended up dying of a stroke. And then these athletes all came to me thinking I'm doing sports medicine. I should be able to help them. And of course I didn't. So this boxer went away. Uh, and came back a few months later and a little brown paper bag in his hand. And he said to me, Doc, I know you won't give me steroids, but I wonder if you could do me a favor. Could you tell me if this stuff that's in this, in this bag here is the real thing? I've used Stilbosterone before, and I, um, it used to be quite clear. And this, this is a little milky. So I'm worried that uh, it's not the right thing. I said, where did you get it? Is that I bought it off an East German weightlifter at a boxing match in somewhere, uh, somewhere, uh, I don't know where it was, uh, somewhere in Norway, I think it was. And uh, there was some kind of a pre-Olympic event going on. And, uh, and uh, they, he bought this stuff. And I said, what'd you pay for it? A thousand bucks. Uh, and I said, oh my God. And in the little brown paper bag, he had another drug in there. It was a pharmaceutical. You could get that here, uh, which is a female, uh, is, a, is a hormone used for treating breast cancer. Uh, and I said, well, what's that for? And this guy was a walking, a walking medical uh, pharmaceutical uh, textbook. He knew everything. And he said, uh, oh, that, I need to take that so I don't develop female breasts. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Uh, anyway, so I looked at the stuff and I had it analyzed. And indeed, um, it was the right thing. So, but he didn't make it to the Olympics. Too many people standing in his way. Uh, didn't give him the steroids when he needed it or who knows what the reason was. Mm -hmm. And then some months later, he came back to me and I don't understand uh, how he could think that I would fall for that. But he said to me, 
uh, it is not for me, but I wonder if you could write a prescription for my sister's horse. Uh, the horse is going lame and it needs this stuff. And it was, he told me what it was. And I was just write a prescription for veterinary use. And I said, well, I'm really sorry. I can't do that. Anyway. So. No, uh, sorry. It's, uh, I'm laughing because I, I, I know these stories far too well. Uh, this topic actually is actually quite personal for me because when I was younger, I actually used steroids. So so this is actually very personal. These questions are very personal to me. Yeah. Now, keep in mind for the audience that might be listening, uh, steroids are not the problem here because they're steroids that we use for asthma and other conditions. We call these anabolic steroids, just that everyone understands that there's a difference between anabolic steroids, which can be used in, in prostate, you know, not, not so much prostate cancer, but people who have debilitating diseases and are dying to keep their muscles up, they sometimes use these things. I've never used them in my practice. Yeah, like when, just to touch up on what Dr. Shaman said that, yes, steroids do have a purpose, but not to, not something that is for vanity. Like I was using it when I was younger. I just wanted to see, you know, bigger muscles so I can get the girls and this and that, but where it led me, I don't want anybody to go through that. Um, going back to the topic, uh, how prevalent is steroid use at the elite Olympic level? Well, I think now uh, if it's going on, it's pretty secretive and they must see at one time I was kind of involved in, uh, in the sports medicine scene um, internationally to somewhat, to some degree. And, and uh, so much has happened now. It was always in my view, I could see that it was always the cheaters and the physiologists that worked with them and the pharmacologists working against the people that were trying to keep sports safe and out of uh, uh, unaffected by steroids, anabolic steroids. And it was always, you'd make room, uh, for example, in Canada, we had a, a gold medal win in 88, um, the same year that my boxer won the gold. And, uh, and I listened to that and I knew about it and I had people coming to me, athletes asking me for the same steroid used by that athlete. Uh, and probably everyone would know his name. I won't mention it. Uh, however, uh, in 88, we won the gold medal on a Friday night in the 100 meters. And I was looking at that and I was watching. And as the athlete was running around uh, the, the stadium with the Canadian flag, I had this sinking bad feeling in my, in my, in my gut. And I was thinking, how could this be? Uh, now, I know he was using the Bulgarian method, which was a way to try and not get caught. But you see, it was always fighting against the the uh, the physio the um, pharmacologists and the scientists that were trying to be creating clean sports against the cheaters. And sometimes the cheaters would get away with it one year and the next year they might not. And so the, the, the hundred meter guy from Canada won the gold and was running around uh, with the Canadian flag. And normally I'd feel really proud of that. And I wasn't feeling very proud and I couldn't understand how he got away with it. Well, Monday morning in my clinic, I got a phone call from the local television station. I hadn't heard the news. And they said, Dr. Shaman, we have a truck coming over to interview you right now. I said, what for? Uh, and they said, well, did you not hear that our man lost the gold medal? He peed into the bottle and they found a steroid. So the Bulgarian method didn't work anymore. And he lost the medal. And, um, you know, I couldn't imagine what that would feel like. Uh, but I, first of all, 
cheating is not the way to get it, but at the same time, uh, it must have been a pretty, uh, pretty big loss. Well, I mean, I know who you're talking about. And I think every single Canadian my age and maybe a little bit older or a little bit younger than me and much and older than me already know who it is. But this guy actually capitalized quite a lot right after it with uh, TV commercials and this and that. So I don't really feel too sorry for this guy. Well, I, I was told that he tried out for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Probably. But they wouldn't take him because he couldn't remember the plays. Yeah, doesn't surprise me. Uh, this is kind of touching up on one of the questions that I asked you before. Well, the difference between finishing third and finishing first. Uh, do you that here in Canada we have, especially here in Ontario, we have this weird thing where we give all children medals even if they don't finish at the top. Do you think that this is really beneficial for the kids? Well, you know what? I can talk about that personally. Um, I have three daughters and um, my older two were two years apart. So they were often together. The youngest one is a few years younger. So she wasn't quite as involved with the older two in their athletic things. And, and at, that's, uh, at winter break, Christmas break, um, I enrolled the older two in ski lessons at the local ski hill uh, in Kitchener, which is a small little bump on the, a little bump, uh, but it was still a nice place for the kids to ski. And they took their lessons. At the end of that, they had a little bit of a fun race. And the oldest daughter was all excited that morning, and the youngest daughter was crying and didn't want to go. So I said, well, what's wrong? How come? And she says, well, I, I know I can't win. And I thought to myself, what are we teaching our children to have them crying and being all upset because they can't win? Something wrong here. So... They may have given, I'm not sure, I don't remember what, who got what, but, you know, she was two years younger and she was probably in a similar group or older, younger, older ones might have been against her. Uh, I don't remember the, the, the exact breakdowns, but I, that really struck me that my, my, my daughter was crying and didn't want to go because she knew she couldn't win. So I have a big issue about this and, and it has to go all the way from, from, my little kids, like my daughters or, or my young children competing, all the way up to the very top. Um, no one remembers who came second in most of these events in the, in the Olympics. They remember number one. Number one kind of gets almost everything. Number two and three, no one even knows who they are a few years later. And there's something not quite right about that. But I don't know how to solve it. I really don't. I mean, we do like the feeling of competitiveness and competitiveness has to have rewards. But when number one and number two have such a major difference in the outcome uh, on the long run in their life, um, anyone who wins at a gold medal in the Olympics has something kind of made for life because they'll always be called a gold medalist. But somebody who won a silver, it's, it's a little ways down the line and further down the line. If you came fourth, of course, it's a terrible loss because you don't get anything. But so I think you're right. Should we be giving something out to all the competitors? I, there's something to be said for doing that uh, because I don't think that young kids should be avoiding athletics because they know they can't win. That's wrong, but I don't know how to fix it. 
but don't you think that's uh, that's one way of saying, hey, maybe you're not good at this, but you're good at something else. You're good at something, just maybe not this particular thing. So, you know, maybe you're not good in, uh, I don't know, swimming, but you're, you excel in basketball. So why don't you put your focus more in basketball rather than swimming? Well, there is that. Uh, this particular daughter has become a quite amazing artist. Uh, amazing artist, really. She does all my graphics for my websites and all that kind of stuff. But she is also a, a painting artist and, and has quite a following. Her art is very unusual. Uh, so it's not like everybody else's. So I mean, you're right. That's a good point you made, John. Uh, but, you know, sometimes people that aren't so good at athletics are good at other things like maybe art or music. And I think that that gives them the life satisfaction that they need. And um, I've actually studied a little bit of the psychology of music because people going up and performing at music festivals and performing at contests, especially classical music kind of stuff, their psychology is also extremely important as we have it also in sports, of course, and in life in general. Psychology is important for all of life, and we use it a lot with our heart patients. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, you have a very interesting uh, program. You call it HELP. Yeah. What is HELP? HELP. Well, everybody can use HELP. Uh, it stands for Harmonica Exercise for Lung Program. Well, what's that all about? Well... I started my practice in 1978 after training for 10 years, post-secondary training. And in 1978, or just before that, I, in my training in medical school, tested my lungs and I had 6.8 liters of capacity. And um, I was the highest in my particular group in my medical class. And there were people a lot taller than me that theoretically should have bigger lungs because your lung capacity is determined by how tall you are, whether you're male or female, and it's also uh, an age, of course. And another one is, uh, is one's, uh, uh, not gender, I mentioned gender, um, ethnicity, not ethnicity. Uh, like, like nowadays we have all this issue with blacks and, and such. And uh, they, have a, they actually have slightly different lungs capacities. So when we do lung testing on people, we have to put in certain aspects. And my staff do all that. I, I should have studied up to be able to answer your question properly. But basically, these different factors go into the machine, and then we compare that to what we got, and it tells us if we're where we should be or, or could be better or should be better or what, whatever. So my number in 1975 or 4, whatever it was, was 6.8 liters, a really good, good number for a guy at that time that was 5 foot 10. Um, I didn't measure it again, but I always had this feeling I have invincible lungs, It'll last a long time. The rest of my body will want to die and my lungs won't give up someday down the line. Uh, that was my thinking. Well, in 2006, I bought some new equipment and I tested my lungs. To, I tested the equipment, I should say. And I, I set it up and on a weekend. I tested it and it read 4.7 liters. And I thought, well, this stuff's no good. I'm glad I didn't throw the box out because I got to send this back. I tried it several times, kept getting 4.7. Uh, what happened to my 6.8 that seemed to be not that not that much before, 2006 versus 1975. And I, um, I pulled out the machine we were actually using in the clinic because it was calibrated and we knew it was working. Guess what? 4.7. 
so what happened in those years? How could this happen? I was thinking, what disease is coming along? What's going on? And, you know, you walk around kind of feeling unwell a lot of the time, thinking that something's bad going to happen, something's developing. And so I did some research and found out a staggering number that all of us, it's normal to lose half your lung function between age 30 and 70. And as you're going through the years and as you're past 30, approaching 70, you may say, well, that's a lot of loss. I already knew in other areas of our physiology that we could affect that. We already knew that in the heart end. From the heart point of view, I was taking heart patients in a year to a year and a half after starting the, the rehabilitation program, I could improve their heart function by 25 to 27%. And what another way of wording that is, I actually got them to operate 25 to 27% younger within a year. So I'm thinking, if you can do that with the heart, and we already had evidence that you can do that, and you would know this as well, you, you can also make people younger from the point of view of muscle by, by training. Uh, so we knew we could, we could make the, the muscles, the musculoskeletal system younger, and we could also make the cardiovascular system younger. So I went out on a, on a, a mission to try and find a way to make the lungs work younger. I already knew that if um, athletes train their lung muscle strength, they perform better in cycling competitive events. Uh, by being able to have stronger breathing muscles. I mean, it makes, it makes sense, but it was actually shown to be the case in, in cycling athletes. But I would think it would apply to other athletes as well. If you can strengthen the breathing muscles beyond what they are, then there could be an edge. Now, I'm not looking for that edge in athletes, but I'm looking for that edge in, in, in people as they go through the years and as they age. Because all of a sudden, getting that extra split second in a race is not nearly as important as living another five or 10 years. And living is one thing, but living with a good function is even better. So I looked for some way to get the uh, lungs improved and I didn't know what to do. And I looked at all kinds of options and, and I eventually came up with using the, a harmonica because it's the only musical instrument in the world. Uh, uh, instruments that use uh, air to make sound and using your lungs would all have a bit of an advantage, but the harmonica had an extra advantage because it's the only instrument in the world that uses the most important muscles, which are the inhaling muscles. The inhaling muscles are more important um, because if you were paralyzed with the exhaling muscles, you'd probably still be alive. You wouldn't be able to do that much. You wouldn't be able to compete or do anything physically wonderful, but you, you wouldn't be able to keep enough air moving to keep you alive. Whereas... Um, the inhaling muscles, if you didn't have those working, uh, unless someone is there breathing, you're doing, you're giving you a mouth to mouth or some other form of keeping you alive, you would be dead. And uh, if you don't get air in, you don't have oxygen to distribute around the body. And that oxygen is, needs to go to every body tissue, needs oxygen to stay alive. The brain is very important there in that regard, the heart, the lungs, muscles, even skin, bowel, the only two tissues that you own that don't need oxygen to stay alive are fingernails and hair. So, um, so I set out on this sort of a noble quest to try and find a way that we can reduce the aging of the lungs. And I started out with a normal harmonica. And it was, uh, it was good, but it didn't have an overwhelming result. Um, and I realized that 
I was told by harmonica experts who I talked to, they said that, well, you need to use more notes because single note playing is what harmonica players do. It makes nice melodies. You can play home, sweet home and uh, home on the range or whatever you want to play. It sounds nice. It's satisfying musically, very nice. However, it wasn't giving us the physiology for the lungs that I was aiming for. So a harmonica instructor that I actually had used in the past several times had phoned me and asked me how my study was going. And I told him I wasn't happy with the results. Uh, and he said, well, why don't you use multiple note playing? And he demoed it on the phone. And I, I took a harp a harmonica and I tried it. And immediately I could feel what he's talking about. So he had me do this exercise called the train exercise, which wasn't very musically fun, uh, but it was, it was physiologically challenging to the pulmonary system. And I could feel it right away. And as a matter of fact, now when I do my daily train exercises with my harmonica, uh, I, I can feel immediately, uh, within 30 seconds, I can feel the muscles of breathing get sore, reminding me of the days of my youth when I used to lift weights and afterwards have that pleasant pain that you or discomfort that you would have, which I'm sure you know totally all about. Uh, but you get that from breathing. So, but then all the musicality was lost. The musicality... Um, because, you, you know, doing a train isn't very musical. Sounds like a train, but after a while, it's kind of boring. Um, so I came up with uh, an idea. I won't go into the whole story and the history of that. It's not, not important. But I ended up coming and inventing a new harmonica that actually plays. I'm not sure if people out there would know, many would, uh, what a chord is. And a normal harmonica, the ones we were using, is a blow and a draw chord, blow and draw. Uh, and two chords. So starting out with that uh, idea of using chords as, as a musical uh, challenge for the health program, harmonica exercise for lung program, uh, the music was kind of boring because we only had two chords. And I didn't, I didn't know about music. Uh, I had music lessons as a young child, but then abandoned all of that. And I had no music in my life since the late 60s. In the early 60s, the Beatles came over and all that, uh, the, the British invasion, and all, I kind of identified with that. Then all that kind of died out, and the new music came out in the 70s. I, I, I didn't identify with it, and I, I kind of was too busy with my medical training and my work, and I, I left, music left my life. So all of a sudden now, uh, I'm trying to find something that would be satisfying so people will do the exercises, and I came up with something called chordal jamming. Uh, which, which uses the two chords on the C harmonica as a C and a G chord, blow and draw. And uh, that was good, but the music was kind of blasé. Two chords aren't enough to give you satisfying music. Are you a musician, John? No, but I love listening to music. Okay, well, you listen to it because it sounds lovely to you, and, that's, and, and I agree with you. Uh, and that's because of the various chords that come together to make that music happen. The harmonica doesn't have them all. And if you're a great harmonica player, you can find the notes to make that happen in a way. But ordinary people would take a lifetime and, and then they still wouldn't be able to master that very well. And then the single note playing wasn't challenging enough. So I invented something called a medical harmonica, which plays actually eight different chords, same size as a normal harmonica. And that's what we do now to improve uh, lung function and reduce the aging of the lungs. And our improvement in breathing muscle strength is actually way higher than I ever expected. I mentioned to you 25 to 27% with the heart improvement of, breath, of uh, muscle strength of the heart. Well, we're getting actually somewhere in the range of 50 and even more percent in people that are diligent. Now, one thing I got to say, no matter what we do, whether it's diet, whether it's exercise to build muscle, where there's exercise to improve your aerobic capacity, you 
need to be diligent to make it work. You cannot just think about it and not do it. You have to do it. And the same with the harmonica program. The people that are diligent are getting way higher results in the, in the improvement in breathing muscle strength. Can this help somebody who has had a history, a life history of smoking? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, a colleague of mine, Victor Yun, who was actually in, uh, in, in, in uh, University of San Francisco, I believe, or anyway, a university around San Francisco, and he was a professor there. He came from, North, from South Korea, I guess. Anyway, and he uh, went back to South Korea and set up a program for people to quit smoking by using the harmonica. And I've heard that part of smoking is that hand mouth feeling of, you know, putting a cigarette in your mouth is part of the deal. And part of the getting hooked on it has to do with that. Well, the harmonica has that because you take the harmonica and put it in your mouth as well. And Victor uh, put up programs for that. Now I haven't specifically addressed smoking with my harmonica, but any, uh, we run the program in my clinic and uh, right now with COVID-19, we've had to kind of not have those programs uh, while we're waiting to, and I'm going to actually start a podcast for the harmonica program and uh, do some of that work o- online as well, because the COVID is lasting longer than many of us hoped it would. Yeah. And from what I'm hearing, uh, the hubbub around everywhere, it's not going to be going anywhere, anywhere, anytime soon. Well, I'm not sure if you want to ask me anything about that because I've researched it a lot. And I guess just very recently, last day or two, um, was it Spain? I think one of the European countries had a big, big outbreak. Uh, and what's Italy, that? Had, Italy had like a couple of days where they had like a thousand, thousand cases where it just went. Just recently? Just recently, maybe like a week ago or something. But I didn't think it was Italy. I remember Italy had that terrible outbreak early on, and they were the worst by far for the longest time until others caught up. But I thought this one was different. Now, I could, I could be wrong. But I, in any event, these, these – and you know what it is? I, I, I have to give you this because all the people out there listening, I, I really hope you take this to heart. You know, too many people out there think they're not part of the solution. People who don't think they're part of the solution are part of the problem. If people are not out there staying away from this virus, this virus can't swim, it can't fly, it can't crawl. And if it can't do that, it can't get to you. So if you stay away from where the virus is, you're not going to get it. If you don't get it, you're doing a big service to the community, to your country, because you're not going to be spreading it. Because everyone that gets this, uh, this number called the r naught. don't worry about it, it's a fancy, if you know what it is, you, you know already, but let me tell you what it really means. The r naught is a number that tells us in a particular locality, a particular country, uh, but most of the time it's sort of a particular region, let's say the province of Toronto, the province of Ontario. Now, Toronto is the worst. Why? Because everyone is so densely together in Toronto. Wherever you have a city with dense population, there's always going to be a lot more there because you can't stay away from other people so easily. If you're out in rural Saskatchewan, and if you play your cards right, you should never get this. Uh, So what do you have to do? You have to stay away from the virus. And all the people that are rebelling against this, I saw them even early on, our premier was talking on, t- on their television every day, and, and they showed, they showed uh, people demonstrating with signs about there is no virus, there is no virus, it's all a hoax. And of course, people start buying into that, and it's going to ruin our country, it's going to ruin everything, it's going to ruin, the pandemic will keep going. We've got to fight this virus. If, we, if everybody would have had a suppression mode, which is what I, what I was going for, suppression of the virus, 
right from the start, if everyone did their job, that virus would be gone now. So the R naught has to go below one. What does that mean? Well, the R naught at one means that the person who gets the virus only spreads it to one other person. And that means you're not going to get the numbers going up. The curve is not going to go up. But if the R naught is between 2 and 3.2, which is what it generally is, every single person will spread it to two, to as many as 3.2 people. And if that person spreads it to those, they also spread it to that same number of people. And before you know it, it's like an exponential rise, and that curve just goes up. And, we, and then we'll have run into the problem that we avoided the first time, running out of ventilators, running out of you know, ICU beds. We never got to that point because we did all the right things. So what we, what we got was because of what we did. And we got less than we hoped for, less than we could have got, uh, but still more than we hoped for. So I think that message needs to go out to everybody out there and everybody has to do what they can to be part of the solution. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really want to take it that way, this whole conversation, but hey, wait, so let's, let's, uh, it's topical. It's, it's topical. topical. And, so, and everybody out there listening needs to know that I had to throw that in. No, that's, that's fine. Um, kind of keeping with that kind of topic with the last lockdown, a lot of people have been depressed. You right. experienced something similar when you said that you noticed that, uh, your lung capacity went from 6.8 to 4.7. So how did you manage to get out of feeling depressed? Well, let me tell you off the bat, uh, I have a lot of patients that are depressed and I work really hard to help them. Uh, but I luckily have not had that. Now, sometimes they say as you get older, it might happen. But so far, I've not been a person that's easily get easily become depressed. And that could be chemical, could be genetic, could be environmental, who knows. However, I get a lot of patients that are depressed. And I think that um, I remember when I first started my practice, there were a lot of looser guidelines by our health plan in Ontario. I'm not sure they still call it OHIP. I, I'm not sure mm -hmm. they don't use that term so much. Yeah. Uh, they call it the Ministry of Health more so now, but OHIP was uh, the Ontario Health Insurance Plan. Uh, and that was something that stuck. And I don't think they call it that quite that anymore, but it's, it's out there and still being used. And at that time, OHIP had a plan that if somebody had a, an illness or a problem in Ontario that we didn't have treatment for, and that treatment was available elsewhere, that they would pay for people to go and have it. But they, they closed that loophole very quickly because a lot of people were going to these, these uh, fancy... Uh, uh, fitness farms or, or uh, whatever they were. And they would go there and they would, they would be given all this wonderful food. It cost a fortune. And the government said, well, it's not available here. So they started paying for it. And these people would go there. And what they had to do, instead of taking antidepressants, they had to, they had to go out and exercise about three, four times a day. They go out in groups and run. And literally, they exercised almost all day long. And it had a tremendous impact on their depression, more than they found with the drugs. And then, of course... Ontario got wise to this and said, we can't afford that. And they, they closed that. And they said, they're not going to be giving treatments elsewhere and pay for it if we don't have it. That's gone now. Uh, what does that tell you? It tells you something in your domain, John, could be helpful for depression. Uh, people that come to you that are depressed, 
you've got to start running in the morning and don't stop till midnight. I'm just kidding. Uh, but you've got to start them exercising and, and give them long distance exercise because it's proven to help depression. Oh, I know that firsthand. I mean, when I was going through my own depression, uh, the one thing that helped me get out of it was exercise, so which is what brought birth to this uh, podcast in itself. So my next question to you is, if the Ontario, if the government, if the, if the premier of Ontario and his office or her office saw that the benefits of mental health had a greatly, had a greater impact with exercise rather than the drugs, why are we not prescribing exercise rather than drugs? Well, the same question applies. I, I started a program to reverse artery blockage that's been proven scientifically started with Dr. Dean Ornish, scientifically proven and validated. But everyone said, well, that's too hard to do. People aren't going to do it. Uh, and, and Ornish was the most popular doctor in the world in the 90s. His, his stuff came out in 89 at the New, uh, in New Orleans at the American Heart Association annual meeting. And he, uh, he proved that you can unblock arteries. The, the group that did all the uh, work with uh, diet, stress management, group support, and uh, obviously exercise – they, they had an, uh, between 82 and 90% unblocking of arteries in the number of people. 82 to 90% of them unblocked their arteries. And probably the ones that didn't, didn't do it enough. They weren't diligent enough. They weren't compliant enough. So why has that fallen by the wayside now? Because there's all kinds of other things out there that are fighting for attention whether it's the, 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 the fast food industries and because talking about the dietary part of it and, and Dr. Dean Ornish caused almost irreparable damage to the pork marketing board, the beef marketing board and, and all the, the egg marketing board and the dairy farmers and it caused a lot of damage. And they fought back and started spending a lot of money for other people to go out there and spread the counter information so that they could still sell their products. So when I go to medical meetings now, uh, I went to the, Amer the Canadian Cardiovascular Congress two years in a row where they actually hired some doctor, a cardiologist from the U.S. that came up there and said you should be eating more beef and pork. I went up to the microphone and I said, well, doctor, I I'm kind of shocked by this. Uh, Dr. Dean Orner showed you could reverse artery blockage by staying away from that kind of food. And now you're saying that, that you're supposed to eat all this kind of food. He says, well... Dr. Ornish had a small group, a fanatical leader, a hands-held brainwashing approach. People just couldn't do it. And then that was it. It never had an explanation. But I know that those people were paid for by industry. And one thing that I've said many a time, commerce overrules science. And there's no question about that. Get yeah, used okay. to it. Get used to it. You're not going to get any argument from me either, but I think I think people have started to wise up now, and I hope so. People are starting to see different aspects. Um, I just don't under still don't understand why the medical uh, the medical industry hasn't seen it yet. Uh, uh, no, I don't want to say that. Um, I do think that the that the doctors and the psychologists out there have seen it. I still don't understand why it's not part of their prescription. One uh, yeah. one person out there, 
uh, one trainer, Paul Chuck, actually came out and said that uh, exercise is the drug of choice because exercise works as a drug. It Absolutely. releases and uh, it releases endorphins, epi, uh, epinephrine. It releases uh, all the serotonin. It releases all this adrenaline in your body, just the same way as you would a cocaine hit or uh, or get some kind of high. It does the exact same thing, just not at that level. Switching gears a little bit. <laughs> well, I was going to say, uh, I, I, I'm a member of the American College of Sports Medicine. And uh, they have many different disciplines that are members. Uh, most of them are either uh, PhDs or master students in the scientific field or, or MDs. But there's all kinds of trainers and, and even nutritionists that come to those as well. And um, I've only missed two of them since 1977 until this year was the third one. It was canceled because of COVID. I, I missed the year my dad died and I missed the year of the pilot project. My dad died the same month and I just could not go. Uh, and the year of the, I was involved in the pilot project in cardiac rehabilitation and the workload was so immense that I, I had to get it all done. I couldn't go. And then COVID was the third one. Since 1977, I've been to them all. And it's very encouraging to go there because they got all the scientific information. And every time I go, I get re-enthusiastic about everything. You're kind of re-excited uh, every single time. If you could ever put together the cash and go to one of those, uh, I think you'd have a tremendous benefit from it. But I'll try and keep you informed now that we're buddies here. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. Um, like again, switching gears, uh, you've had quite the resume when it comes to training elite athletes. Now, without infringing on doctor-patient confidentiality, can you list some of their accomplishments? You've already listed a couple. Can you list a couple more? Well, you know, my patients have been elite athletes, medalists in the Olympics, but a large part of my population that I really put a lot of energy into where I've gained a lot of benefit for them, or at least they've gained it under our tutelage are people with damaged hearts and lungs, but you want to hear about the elite athletes. So uh, I just want to mention that we don't want to forget about many of the general population, what can be helped, how, how you can help them, but elite athletes. Well, I guess boxing, Alpine skiing, swimming, uh, I've literally had, I don't know that a sport that I have not co had covered in my clinic, um, and I've had uh, young Canadian baseball enthusiasts that wanted to make it to the big leagues as pitchers. Uh, I've had them as outfielders, and uh, I've had many of them that I have this theory, I think I mentioned it already, that the closer somebody can train to an overuse level, and remember overuse is what causes those intrinsic injuries. Extrinsic injuries are where you fall or you get hit by something or something hits you or you get tackled or whatever. That's an extrinsic. Remember I talked about that earlier and the intrinsic injuries are the overuse ones. And with intrinsic injuries, um, you know, it's, it's really important to try and avoid those as best as you can, because uh, that's where training comes in. And that's where people like yourself has to train people how to do the right kind of lifting and weights. So when I talk about uh, elite athletes, trying to prevent them from getting an intrinsic injury, so that they can keep training is really critical. How do we do that? Well, I often like to, I'm not sure if you're going to ask me what fitness is. I think we talked about it briefly, but I might as well just enter with that, uh, that number or that uh, 
advice right now. That was fitness. My next question. Okay. So, do you mind if we throw it in here? Go just, ahead. Just toss. All right. It so, <laughs> fitness is, in my opinion, is a number of components. It's muscular strength, flexibility and range of motion, aerobic endurance, fitness capacity which is a big one involving heart, lungs, and the vascular system. And the last one is coordination. Now, strength, obviously, you can get that by doing the right exercise to gain strength. Flexibility involves stretching and range of motion exercise. And aerobic endurance capacity involves lung exercise and heart exercise. Um, and the, um, the, the coordination component has to do with how well your brain coordinates with your nerve and the nervous system coordinates with your muscles, bones, and joints so that they all interact properly. Now, some people are obviously born with certain talents and they already have an edge. Like I'm sure that Wayne Gretzky and all the, I don't even know who all the new ones are right now that are, are amazing hockey players and, and any sport really. These people have a certain amount that they get genetically to start with. But then of course, they also have maybe someone in their family that's helped them a lot. I think Wayne Gretzky had a father that was extremely involved in his career. Uh, Wayne, you remember Wayne Gretzky? Oh, yeah. He was uh, one of my uh, childhood heroes. Okay, good. Uh, a lot of the young people they, they didn't live through that era. And of course, so, but he um, had a lot of things going for him. And he became most exceptional hockey player at that time. Uh, it's hard to compare different eras of hockey players. But basically, um, so fitness and uh, one of the big ones to make it big in, in competition is the coordination part of it, especially if the, if the sport involves skill in skating and uh, dribbling a basketball and uh, high, jumping high and all of these kind of things are really involved. Uh, so fitness is obviously very important. You've got to work on every component. Uh, and fitness also reduces the likelihood of those intrinsic injuries that I spoke about. They also reduce the likelihood of extrinsic injuries. Uh, so fitness is critically important, and I like to keep things simple. And um, strength, flexibility, range of motion, aerobic fitness capacity, and coordination are what I call the four components of fitness. So what did you see? So with, uh, with, uh, did you have any like huge hurdles that you had to come across with some of them? What do you mean by hurdles? Uh, in my, in my medical work, you mean? Yeah. Like or in the athletes, in the athletes in your medical work, what were some of the biggest hurdles that you had to come across and how to, how would you, how did you get around some of those? Okay. Well, the hurdles that an athlete would have to, overcome a hurdle to become better in their sport and et cetera, and compete better. Most of that would mostly have to absolutely you'd think, you'd know, that that would be the coaches. Uh, the coaches would be mostly involved, but the coaches often call me in. I've had to go to the pool side with swimmers. I've had to go to the tennis court to watch the strokes of tennis players to find out why they were getting a particular elbow injury that, that, you know, they might be getting golfers elbow when they're a tennis player. I'm not sure if you knew that, but professional tennis players don't get tennis elbow as much as they do golfer's elbow. Uh, kind of strange. Uh, but in any event, um, in my own career, overcoming hurdles, I had many of them because I got into a f two fields of work that hadn't existed before I started, at least not in general practice. Uh, and overcoming the hurdles of you know, I, I'm not sure how many people are interested in all those hurdles, but I mean, you can imagine that if you go into a field that 
thousands of people had followed that path. There's a well-paved path to walk on. If you're going into a brand new field, there's no path. And a lot of the times I had to mash my way with a machete through the brush to make my own path. And that was, uh, that was a challenge. And here I am 42 years later. And because it's been a challenge and because I've bought into this, because I feel I'm still helping people every day, I'm still at it with tremendous energy every day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing with a uh, uh, golfer's elbow for tennis players, it does, it actually doesn't surprise me one bit. No. Uh, for people out there, just so you know, a golfer's elbow is where the, the flexor muscles are involved. So the flexor muscles are the muscles that close your wrist. Where can you see that here? Closing your wrist are the flexor muscles. Opening your wrist are the extensor muscles. The extensor muscle attachment on the elbow is at the lateral epicondyle. That's the outside of the elbow. It's a fancy name. Uh, doctors like using fancy names to sound important, but I'm trying not to make it sound that way. Anyway, the flexor muscles are, are the ones that attach to the medial epicondyle, which is that part of the inside of the elbow. Um, and the reason that uh, tennis pro tennis players get golfer's elbow more often is because they use on their serve, they use a t an action on their serve that uses the flexor muscles. Whereas tennis players who are not pros don't hit their backhand very well. And they miss hit it more often because their forehand is easier to hit in the sweet spot. Whereas the, 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 the less uh, accomplished tennis players miss hit their backhand more than their, their forehand. By miss hitting the backhand, you're creating uh, vibratory forces that cause the problem on the extensor side, which is here as opposed to here. Okay. So uh, you would know about this, John, because you already know about athletic training and so on. So you would know that, but the audience may not have. So I thought I would just clear that up a little bit no that's perfect that's perfect yeah i know because uh like like i said like i haven't trained um i haven't trained tennis players but i can understand the forces that are going through the joints as they're serve one as they're serving as they're following through like i can picture it in my mind's eye you know when a the tennis forces, player yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the forces that, they, that they're exerting on their joints through their muscular system. And when that ball hits that racket, it also creates a, vibra uh, a vibration up, up that entire chain, actually right to their head. So I wouldn't be too surprised if I could, if, uh, if I see tennis players with migraines, wouldn't surprise me one bit. I used to be the doctor for the Canadian Open Tennis Tournament for 13 years. Uh, I never got to find out which ones had migraines. I don't think they'd tell you. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> uh, so what did you learn about yourself during that time? During my career? Yeah, training the athletes. Like all the stuff well, that they were going on. Did you see anything about yourself that would reflect on the athletes? Well, uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess I've tried my way. I was an accomplished swimmer uh, before medical school. And then I had to give it up when I accepted into Toronto, University of Toronto Medical School. I had to give up my swimming career because I was actually going to be competing in the northeastern United States for the University of Waterloo uh, in, the, in 1971, long ago. Um, and uh, so I was a swimmer. Uh, I actually taught a lot of swimming in my early young years as a teenager in early 20s. And um, so I don't know. Uh, I guess by, by being involved in sports – it makes it much easier to be a sports medicine doctor. I, should, I can't even imagine somebody going into sports medicine that has not had at least some athletics in their life. 
because you have to kind of know the the mechanics of the sports and you have to kind of know, like I just discussed the issue of the tennis uh, strokes and so on. You have to kind of know all that. That's part of it because in order to understand what somebody has, you have to understand what causes, like when I take a history and somebody tells me they're a tennis player and they got elbow pain, I ask them, what stroke is it on? Or when is it? Is it only on the serve? Or uh, Because there's many other problems. In the shoulders, for example, the most common shoulder problems are rotator cuff tendinitis, where the tendons of the shoulder get inflamed because the shoulder has such a very significant movement. Uh, unlike the, the, the knee, the knee has flexion and extension. It has very little movement, but it has big, strong muscles. And the knee is actually the most injured, uh, injured joint uh, in, in, in the body. I know that because I've done statistics on my data over the years. And um, pretty much of all the areas of injury, the knee has 44% of the injuries. Really? Yep. That I did not know. Yep, 44%. Because um, at the time we collected this data, we had a lot of people started running, and a lot of them had runner's knee. So the people out there, take a guess. What do you think runner's knee would be called, an intrinsic injury or an extrinsic injury? I'll give you two seconds to think about it. If you said extrinsic, you were wrong. It's an intrinsic injury. It's an overuse injury. It was internal force that caused it. That, that's, that was the only exam question you're going to have from my talk here. Uh, anyway, so, um, so be, no, understanding athletics is really a big part of this. Uh, and I've, I've been a swimmer. I've been a tennis player. I've been a skier, obviously, to work with the national ski team for 53 and a half weeks in Europe. I've got to ski down the, the absolute most dangerous ski hills in the world. Most of the ski hills are not open for public skiing because they're too dangerous. And I'm not that great a skier to be a racer, but I could manage to get down those hills. Uh, Kitzbühel, uh, skiing down Kitzbühel is, in some places is very intimidating. Because first of all, it's all ice there. So knowing about that and having people come to me, it really, I can't imagine. And when someone comes to me in a sport that I've never played before, I mean, I've played a bit of baseball. Uh, I've, I've never played much basketball. Uh, it just wasn't a sport that uh, happened in, in my uh, timing in high school and so on. And I, obviously, you migrate to sports that you're kind of good at. There's a bit of basketball. Obviously, I wasn't very good at it, I guess, because I didn't migrate to it. Uh, so um, that's, you asked me, that would be one thing right there is having experience was critical and um, knowing what happens in that sport, knowing what the mechanics are is all very important. Awesome. So I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, these questions I always, we're, we're going to be wrapping up in a little bit, uh, but I always ask these questions of all my guests. Um, with the increase in people suffering from depression from the lockdown, what would be the one thing that you could tell them to keep their hopes up? No, I missed part of that. What was the first, first part? So with the increase in people suffering from depression from the lockdown, what, oh, would, the lockdown. Be, okay. yeah, what would be the one thing that you could tell them to keep their hopes up? Well, I have two ways of looking at that because in the cardiac, like a lot of my patients now are cardiac patients that are suffering uh, and they're usually isolated in their homes, usually older. They can't see their, their grandchildren, this kind of thing. So I encourage them to, um, to use some of the social media th uh, possibilities like uh, uh, even, you know, talking on some of the video formats that exist uh, on Apple. You can, you do it. You can do it on Messenger. Uh, get videos. And I, with my grandchildren, 
my my three daughters, their husbands, and all, and I have four grandkids. Uh, one of my grandchildren, my only granddaughter, was born in June, which is right in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, I drove to their home in Milton, and I I drove up and I parked my car, and I was 12 feet away, and I, I looked at her and uh, twice already, and uh, she actually locked eyes with me. So that was really a great thing for me. So any way that people can get to what they're missing. Now, an athlete would not necessarily be missing their grandchildren, uh, but so it'd be different. But you have to find something you can connect with, even talking to somebody in your sport, uh, phoning them up and maybe have a visual. Seeing them visually adds more than just hearing it. Uh, I think that goes a long way. Um, and obviously, trying to maintain some aspect of their sport. Uh, you know, you've asked a, you asked a very open-ended question. And if you're talking about athletes, it's very different than cardiac patients. And it's very different from, uh, you know, non-athletes that want to be. Yeah, these questions are just general questions. General, yeah. Well, those are some of the things. I think that I've learned a lot about group support. Uh, In my cardiac program, when when originally Dr. Ornish came out with that, I didn't realize uh, that we were already having a lot of group support in our cardiac program. So connection with people is a very important thing. And that's, that's kind of gone now. Kind of, but not really. I think a lot not really. You're right. There's ways to find it, and yeah, you have to go looking for it. Yeah. Uh, where do you see your practice in the next five years? Well, that'd be easier easier to answer if you had talked to me 30 years ago. Uh, I'm already at 42 years this year. Uh, in September, early September, I'll be 42 years into my practice, starting my 43rd year. 30 years ago, I would have been 14. Right. <laughs> well, that's okay. You got to start somewhere. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay. Uh, I hope that I'm still alive. I hope that I'm still functional. But now that I get older and I see patients that are a lot younger than me that have medical tragedies, it worries me. Um, I have to do what I preach. Uh, and sometimes it's been a challenge, especially with all the things on my plate with the broadcasting course and everything that I've had going on, the phone calls with my patients and all the different things that tie me up, phoning hospitals about people that are in trouble. Uh, I put a lot into it with every patient, and that uh, leads to using up a lot of time. So I'm hoping I'm still here in five years. And in those five years, I hope to have three different podcasts available uh, with obviously episode, many episodes for each. Um, and uh, the main one, which is the Shaman MD one, which is the one that I put up while you did yours, uh, and then I'm going to have another one for the harmonica lung program uh, starting up soon. Uh, and then a third one is unrelated, except for the fact that uh, a gravel pit is invading and trying to get in, putting in a gravel pit right next door to my clinic. And there's going to be as many as 50 to 80 trucks an hour going by, big heavy trucks that are going to, we have an outdoor track. Mm-hmm. Too bad I can't show you pictures here, but you have an outdoor track with beautiful trees and birds, and it gets people totally away from the stress of their life when they come out to the program and do their walks. Uh, and that's really important. The connection among each other, with each other, is really important. And now, um, so my, my third podcast is going to be called uh, Gravel Pits War. Nice, and I love the, it. The S on pits is a dollar sign. I love it. That's great. I'll, I'll make sure I send you the link. Please do. Please do. Uh, If you could pick up the phone right now and call yourself at 20 years old, what would you tell yourself? I'd probably say, get get ready for one hell of a ride. (laughs) Because I've had one hell of a ride. 
I wouldn't change anything. I've had so much trouble with things that I had to overcome, but I've done it all, not by myself. A lot of my patients, you wouldn't believe my cardiac patients, they formed an organization that helps to raise money so we can give our program away for free because we don't get much from the government because the government pays well. I don't want to say that they, they don't mean to, but they pay you well if you, don't, if you don't spend time with people. All over medicine, that's the case. If you don't spend time with somebody, and probably in your field as well, if you don't spend time with people, uh, you can do better financially. Maybe, I don't, know, I don't know about your field, but in my field, it is that way. In my field, it is, but uh, I think this COVID actually opened up a lot of trainers' eyes. Yeah. And I'm actually working on a couple programs to show other trainers that uh, you no longer have to trade your time for money. But that's... Well, uh, from what I've learned of you, which has been a little bit during this course that we were sharing, uh, you're my kind of a guy. Uh, I think you're the, you've got the same kind of, uh, just from the way I've heard you talk, uh, you've got my kind of attitudes and uh, striving for me. So another thing is, one problem I have is I'm a perfectionist, and I suspect you might be a bit as well. Oh, yeah. uh, I think I, I recognize that. Uh, rec perfectionists recognize other perfectionists. So two problems that I have as a personality defect is perfectionism, and um, I'm a procrastinator. I procrastinated about giving my lectures to put my knowledge out to the world for 40 years. And I only did, signed up for this course because it was called Broadcast Yourself. And I finally thought this would be a way to get my lecture material out to the world so that when I can't work anymore, it'll be out there. So I'm happy to have met you, John. I'm happy you invited me. Maybe. And if you have any more questions, I'm ready to go. Just a couple more. Okay, uh, no problem. What keeps you up at night? Work. Uh, I I never, if you mean what keeps me up where I can't sleep, yeah, nothing. Oh. The problem is I only go to sleep. The last while I've been averaging probably 5.30 in the morning. And then I got to get up by 9 or 9.30. And that's because I've got so much to do. I'm enthusiastic about it. Uh, working on all the things that you know that I'm working on that you've also worked on. Uh, and, and of course, my patients. The last two weeks, I've had two big challenges. One patient probably took me 20 hours of work but it was worth it because he had the paralysis mm -hmm. and now he's the paralysis is gone. And now he has to be watched very carefully. His, his legs stopped. He had no muscle movement in the model anymore. Uh, but we, we got, I won't get into it. And another one just happened last night on a patient that I've been watching for a while because I was afraid he might have a stroke because I heard a brewery, a neck artery obstruction sound that I listen to that most doctors don't listen to. I've had many people say to me, what are you doing here, doctor? I'm listening to their neck with a stethoscope both sides. And they say, doc, what's that? Nobody's ever done that before. And I say, you got to be kidding. I was taught in medical school, every patient you examine should have that. So I found uh, the sound on the artery I didn't want to hear. I did another test and found out the artery was more than 70% blocked going to his brain. Wow. Not a good thing, as you can imagine. And that was a year ago. Wow. And the patient didn't take it seriously enough, didn't do all the things I wanted him to do. And now about a year and almost not quite a year and a half, a year and a quarter later, he had a, a minor stroke. And he's, he's coming out of it now. And now he's going to, you know, we might have to operate on him now to clean the artery out. We were hoping that we could do it without, but he didn't change his li the life that he had to change. So I guess uh, nothing keeps me up. I, I'm asleep before my head hits the pillow almost every time. I'm not kidding you. I, I, as soon as I get into bed, I'm, I'm gone. 
Uh, and that's wonderful because I have so many patients that tell me how about a torture, just lie in bed and they can't sleep. I, that's not my problem. I hope it never happens. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, where can people find more about you? Well, I don't know. Uh, my websites, I have two websites right now. Uh, one is um, shamanmd.com. Shaman is spelled S-C-H-A-M-A-N.M-D, capital M, capital D. I don't, I don't think it needs to be capitalized, but I capitalize it to emphasize the MD component, dot .com. And my second one is simply harmonica, MD.com. Harmonica, lowercase, MD, uppercase, dot .com. Perfect. Uh, we're going to be posting all your links to your social media and your websites with underneath here with the, with the show notes so everybody can have access to Dr. Shaman's uh, amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, any final thoughts? I can't think of any, but um, I'm just always happy to share with young people that will come into the world and, and do the things that I've been had a passion for. And I look on you as that. Uh, I also, I'm trying to create some enthusiasm for the audience out there that might be sitting on the couch watching sports and we should be out and doing them as well. Um, and people that might have had a broken, damaged heart from some heart attack or, or have damaged lungs from who knows what reason, or maybe that are worried about their lungs aging too fast because you should be, you can lose half your lung function between 30 and 70. Um, so I'm hoping to create some enthusiasms that these people will tackle these things and avoid this problem as best they can. Awesome. Well, Dr. John, thank you so much for coming on the show and agreeing to be a guest on my show. Uh, I'm completely honored that you came on so you could share your extensive knowledge and the amazing work that you do with so many, so many, so many people, not just like professional athletes from world champion boxers, but to a grandparent that could get another five years to live their grandkids. I mean, every, I, I'm sure this is what a doctor is supposed to be all about. And you, for me, you, you epitomize what the, what the doctor should be. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for saying all that. And also thank you for having me. Uh, going through hard times is just a test. What you need to know is that when you get out of whatever you're going through, you will be stronger than ever before and you don't need to go through it alone. Always know that you are not alone. Stay tuned for more real people with amazing stories that are just like yours. Until then, to everyone out there listening, I wish you a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night wherever you may be in this crazy world.